This is Michael Melfi, and welcome to the Be Investable podcast, a series where I speak with innovative individuals who share their insights about what it means to be investable. And today, I am enthusiastic to have Vitaly Golom on the show with us. Vitaly lives in San Francisco, has traveled over 20 countries around the world, and consults with many major companies, speaks at conferences, is an amazing author. We're going to tell you more about his book when he gets on. And I am so excited to have him on as he talks about breaking down complex concepts, how he's inspiring, how he educates, and what he's up to now after his tremendous success. You know, before I introduce him, I just want to share a little bit. He was the managing director and global head of principal investments at IEG Investment Banking Group. He was the founding partner at HP Technology Ventures and the corporate venture arm of Silicon Valley's original startup, where he was recognized as a global corporate venture rising star. He's been a three-time CEO and he is just full of knowledge that I cannot wait to share with you. Without any further ado, I want to welcome to the show. Vitaly, welcome to the Be Investable podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today. Glad to be here. And there's a lot we're going to get to talk about and, and bounce around and talk about. And I appreciate you joining us from the, the Bay Area. I, I guess, first and foremost, I, I'd love to kind of find out where did it start from or how did you get started in your career? And, and if you maybe could take us through to where you are today. I'll give you the, the brief version. So I was born in Ukraine. I grew up in Cupertino, largely, since I was about eight years old. And went to the same high school as Jobs and Wozniak. And uh, it wasn't very weird to me at the time, but I grew up in the midst of it all. And, um, you know, started in the 90s, uh, really got exposed to a lot of technology as a kid. And uh, by the time I was in my teens, I was uh, interning at a, uh, when everybody was working at the pizza parlor, I was interning at a software company. And then one thing led to another. At 15, I was the youngest employee of Kinko's back when I was Kinko's before FedEx bought them. I uh, was a graphic designer and then uh, got into starting companies. And by the time I was in college, I was uh, running an enterprise software front-end team at a company that was funded partially by HP. So we'll, we'll kind of come back to that full circle. And, um, and then when uh, the world kind of ended here in 2001 and there was no traffic on 101 for a few years, I got back into entrepreneurship and, and started, actually took over one company, printing company, and then started another company and uh, it was a design agency, won a number of awards, grew to three offices, and then got into the software side. So we can probably continue from there as a next step. So you've done a lot of amazing things, right? Is there any one that sticks out that was actually the most challenging? I'll start with that. You know, it's, uh, I've always taken on different challenges and, it's, and I've, I've looked at it from a lot of different angles. There are people in this world that are specialists and you know, even in investment banking where I am now, the traditional path is to really go to a top business school and then kind of grind it out and climb the, climb the ladder in the investment banking world. My path has always been to, to try things, very difficult things that I shouldn't have been able to achieve and, and accomplish. Sometimes it worked out, sometimes it didn't. Uh, in entrepreneurship, you don't really have a choice, especially in tech entrepreneurship, because if you're doing something, by definition, it's something that nobody's ever done before. And that's what makes a good startup is that you take uh, technology that wasn't available before, a business model that wasn't realistic before, and you just kind of invent it on the spot and see what you can do with it. Some people get luckier than others. Some people persevere. Some people have big personal costs to it all. But, uh, you know, you just have to keep doing it. Awesome. And as you were sharing that, you talked about something we often will talk to refer to as dealing with uncertainty or taking risks. What allows you to be able to deal with that? Or is there something about how you work or something that you like about it? Or what allows that to be possible for you? You know, it goes back to my entrepreneurial roots. I was, I was kind of, you know, you, if you're an athlete as a kid, 
you train and you have the certain energy level and certain activity level that you get used to. If you start as an entrepreneur very young, you kind of become an entrepreneur for life. So after selling my last company in 2015, I did a little consulting with startups, help them grow fast, and then got asked to go help uh, HP build a corporate venture arm. And that was for the first time in my career in, in a large company. And that was really a different pace, mm -hmm. a much, much slower pace. You know, I learned a lot and a couple of years there as far as how things work on that side of the fence. And it was very, very interesting experience for me. Definitely not what I expected, um, yeah. which is why I, I subsequently left and, and went back into the entrepreneurial side a little bit on my own. But I would say I learned a lot of how the world works on that side. So it was, it was quite interesting. And, um, you know, the risk profile is different for large companies and entrepreneurs and, and the service providers around them. And, and I've pretty much been on all sides of it at this point. Got it. And at some point, we're going to talk about the investment banking in a little bit. But I just given your background, I'm so intrigued by some other things. So hopefully you get a glimpse for some of our listeners is, you know, you've got to do some things with 500 startups, you've got to do some things with TechCrunch, you've got to interact and be a subject matter expert for so many, what I would consider very reliable, notable, incredible outlets. When you're working with them, is there one or two things that you, you really try to instill or share that really help build that entrepreneurial mindset you alluded to? Yeah, you know, the, the entrepreneurial mindset is, you know, I would actually drop parallel. Now we work with companies that are all over the world that are looking to Silicon Valley as the next step where they want to scale. And a lot of times, you know, really Silicon Valley is, I don't remember who said it, I think it might have been Mark Andreessen or Reid Hoffman, I think, actually. It said that um, Silicon Valley is not a place, it's a mindset. And we play by different rules here. And this is something that we explain on a daily basis to especially European companies where they're trained to be very conservative uh -huh. and they really shoot for kind of a mid-market kind of, you know, very, you know, hedge their bets and make sure they don't fail. But in reality here, you, you bet, you know, you bet for the Raptors, you, you go big or you go home. You, you know, it takes about the same amount of time and same amount of effort and sometimes same amount of money to go for a big audacious goal than to go for something that's kind of okay. But the kind of okay doesn't really cut it here. The standard in Silicon Valley is, is really about doing world-changing things. And it, it sounds like cliche, but it, it, it's reality. It's like you, you want to go in and you want to change industries. You don't want to be a player or build the next you know 20-person company for the next 20 years. You want to build something that can be 100 million revenue in five years. It could be the next enterprise, the next category builder, the next unicorn. That's really what people are trained for here. What the ecosystem is really looking at and all the big investors are specifically looking at kind of the next big hit. So that's quite, quite different uh, yeah. mindset. And 99% and of the world's companies are not set up for that and they should never be that. There's, there's plenty of room for everything else in other places, perhaps. And startups get over romanticized, but in reality, it's very, very difficult. Yeah. to achieve this. It's, it's like a little bit of a lottery. Yeah. And, and, and so, I mean, for those who are, like you said, majority don't, for those who are not, what would be your advice to them? I mean, everyone's not going to make it to the Valley or be the unicorn even if they don't make it to the Valley. What would be your, what would be your advice to those people that do want a very successful, highly profitable 20, 50, 100, 200 person company, but maybe aren't going to be that unicorn? What, what would be your advice to them as they grow their business? I think number one thing is in, in every case, they need to have situational awareness and self-awareness. They need to understand and kind of pick their place in the world, meaning they don't just end up somewhere. They don't end up of certain size or they don't end up in certain category or they don't go in blind and, and see what happens because there's enough intelligence and information out there. Very few people invent new things. So you might as well do mm -hmm. some homework. Right. So I, I tell a lot of entrepreneurs before you jump in to start a new company, it takes a long time to build a company. You know, in the technology business, it takes about a year to build an initial product, it takes another year or so to find the first customer. There's two years of your non-refundable lifetime. 
and it takes five to eight years to take it all away. So we only have a few of those in us. If you're going to start a conventional business, it might be a consulting company or a, I don't know, a, a retail a shop or, or what have you, or restaurant, you still need to understand what it is you're getting yourself into. It's better for you to spend a few months more doing research before you pull the trigger, before jumping in and signing a lease and doing your personal guarantee and getting yourself in a whole lot of trouble. You know, research first, you know, measure twice, cut once kind of thing, yeah. right? And that applies to any business, uh, especially technology businesses. Timing is a big factor. Using newly available technology as leverage to do something that wasn't possible a year ago is a big factor for startups. But for conventional business, there's so much knowledge out there that you might as well get a little educated and then really figure out what it is that you're trying to do and figure out what does success look like? What are you supposed to be shooting for? If you're just flying by the seat of your pants, you really have to get lucky. And I mean, I, I can't really define luck. Like, how do, you, how do you plan for luck? That's not a business plan. Preparation meets opportunity is what they always tell me, but I don't know about that. Yeah. Let, me, let me ask preparation you this. Preparation is, uh, that, that's a key word, preparation, right? <laughs> a lot of people get into it without, without any preparation. That's right. That's absolutely. Yeah, before we hop on the, the next topic, I, I want to ask you, I mean, obviously you're out there, you have a pulse on what's going on without sharing anything proprietary or confidential. Is there, where do you see the new market being or where do you see emerging trends being? If someone's sitting listening saying, okay, I do want to go for it, where do you think they should be spending their, their resources? Well, it's really interesting. If, if your listeners do a search for my name on YouTube, they'll find some of my keynotes. And a lot of the things they talk about are kind of future technologies and, and the megatrends that are driving yeah. it. Right? It's popular, you know, where the, how the world is changing, the population is changing. And uh, it's, a lot of it is being driven by technology and infrastructure. So the world of transportation, for example, is one of our key areas. And we're seeing huge changes there where, let's say, just the two trends of autonomy and, and electrification are going to change a lot of second order industries. So we're talking about, you know, if you have autonomous cars, do you really need to own a car? Probably not. You could probably rely, especially in big cities, you could probably rely on something like a, an, an autonomous Uber. And that means that the insurance industry is going to change, right? That's the, that's the second order. Like, what do you insure at that point? Are you insuring the car, the, the software, the, the driver that's not touching the, the controls? So there's a lot of change. And, and if you send that to logistics, for example, the traditional metric for rail is anything over 500 miles gets put on a train. Anything under 500 miles gets put on a truck just because the economics of trucks. But when you have autonomous trucks that have no drivers that can go 24-7 and they're not using diesel, but they're using electricity, all of a sudden your calculation changes and anything under 1,000 miles goes on a truck now. So that's going to take away market share from trains. So you have a lot of these different things happening. You know, flying has changed quite a bit. There are a number of companies, believe it or not, working on, on electric. First, you're going to see hybrid powertrains. So you're going, to have, you're going to see electrification of airplanes, much like we saw hybrid cars. But then when the battery chemistry catches up and the, and the weight to power ratio of batteries is going, to, is going to change, you're going to see full electric planes, right? So it, there's going to be some really exciting changes all over transportation. In healthcare, especially in the U.S., you know, that's like almost 20% of our economy. It's like a $3.5 trillion industry. And there are pushes across all different parallels, like from, from front office to insurance, how that gets done all the way through tracking and surgery to actual actual healthcare being delivered and nanobots that are going to be in your na- in your bloodstream in ten years, you know, killing uh, cancer cells and all sorts of things. So, I mean, really exciting, really exciting things coming down the line. What else? In material science, we're seeing three D printing is going to completely change manufacturing, mm-hmm. which will also change logistics because all of a sudden you're going to be shipping raw material around the world where it needs to be done, but you're not going to be shipping boxes with products in them from China. You might be doing manufacturing 
in U.S. So the one way U.S. can actually turn into a manufacturing superpower again is via 3D printing, not by bringing back jobs from the 70s that don't really belong in our cost structure as it is today. So a lot of really interesting things. And you'll see that in the next 10 years, we're, we're about halfway through the next industrial revolution, which is really the merging of the digital and physical worlds. Uh, we have another 10 years to go or so, which is really interesting because we'll see more changes in the next 10 years than probably in the last, I don't know, 30. Um, on the one hand, on the other hand, you know, it's all happening within the course of one generation. And that means that it's really, really taxing on society because everything's changing and people cannot get retrained right away. So all these truck drivers that are going to go away, which is one of the biggest professions in the U.S., like 4 million truck drivers, you know, they don't have a high school education, most of them. So what are they going to do? They're going to turn into software developers overnight? I don't think so. When previous, previous industrial revolutions took about three, four generations and you had time to do this transition in an orderly fashion, now we're seeing it completely tear apart our political systems around the world one by one by one, and people are blaming it on, you know, people that have a different skin color, when in reality, they should be blaming it, you know, a little bit on Silicon Valley, on us, <laughs> and on technology that's, that's changing industries and changing their way of life. So it's, it's an exciting and terrifying time. What can I say? Yeah, I love it. I love it. I, I had to sneak that in there. I saw one of those videos. So thank you for sharing yeah. that. And I, next thing, I, you know, I, I love the book you wrote, you know, The Accelerated Startup, Everything You Need to Know to Make Your Startup Dreams Come True. Who doesn't want to read that book after hearing that That's title? Right. <laughs> um, you get it on Amazon, available hardcover, softcover, audio. Tell us a little bit about what brought you to write that book. What, why did you want to write that book? Obviously, you have the knowledge, the experience. What pushed you to write that book? You know, it's, it's uh, plainly said, it's pain and suffering. I, I went through the pain and suffering as an entrepreneur, and I wanted to, uh, to prevent some of that in others. And, you know, at, at some point, I was a mentor and advisor to something like 11 accelerators around the world. And in every place, I would hear the same problems in a different accent. Mm -hmm. And everybody thinks that they're special, that they have the special problems. Everybody's a snowflake. But in reality, it's the same problem and same path and same mental anguish that people go through when they start companies. Mm -hmm. uh, so I wanted to put together a little bit of kind of best practices. And there are books out there that focus on different parts of the process. There are a lot of books about how to raise money. And they're very simplistic. They're very kind of superficial. There are some books about how to, there are lots of technical books on how to build products in particular technology or business models and all these things. But there's no one book that I found at that point where it was kind of a, you know, from idea to product to company and how to go through that path where, you know, the best accelerators, they, well, now they have a pick of the litter. They'll take companies that almost don't need their help, mm -hmm. but typically they will provide this learning. And, and I really believe that accelerators are kind of like the new business school. I also wrote an article about that in TechCrunch a while back where they provide that knowledge that's really current on how do you actually do this? How do you execute on this? And, and what's a good idea? And how do you find co-founders? And then ultimately, should you go to an accelerator or not? And what's a good accelerator? How do you structure your company to get funding? What are angels? What are VCs? And then all the way through, you know, kind of scaling to a pretty large level. And then ultimately, the kind of the Silicon Valley way is a lot of times you'll see people that went through that journey and they come back as angel investors or mentors, and they have that experience and they give back. And that's actually a big part of Silicon Valley is, is kind of mm -hmm. giving back to the next generation of technologists. Yeah, that is awesome. That is awesome. And as we said, they can either get it at your website or they can go to Amazon and pick up a copy if they'd like to get, to get a copy of the book. Yeah, Amazon, iBooks, I think Barnes & Noble has it as well. So softcover, hardcover, audiobook in English, ebook. We'll, we'll get it out to other countries as well at some point. Awesome. Yeah, we'll get it translated in other countries for sure, hopefully. Um, you, you brought up something about giving. And that's one thing that's super interesting for a lot of successful entrepreneurs is to see that transition from 
the driven entrepreneur that's going to achieve something to move into that altruistic, how do I start to give back more? How do I start to to share? Any idea? I mean, obviously, you have a lot of thoughts. Any idea why that it happens at that point, we start to see them give back? Is it a continue to see it move forward? Is it a hey, I missed out. What do you think it is that, that why, they, why that happens? I think it's a normal transition. I mean, you know, just like you look kind of, if anybody studies, any of your listeners study organizational behavior, you'll find certain patterns where people of a certain age, they, they get into this kind of Yoda part of their life where they want to they teach. Yeah. Not everybody, but a lot of people do. But I think in Silicon Valley, it's more of kind of the phenomenon of um, player becoming a coach. Yeah. And they either, for some reason, you know, it, it Young people have a huge advantage in startups because, you know, you, 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 know, you might just graduate college, you're in a ramen diet, you don't have a family, you have nothing to lose, and you have all the time in the world. Maybe you're not experienced, maybe you're not as plugged in, but if you're motivated, you'll get there. Where somebody that's kind of, you know, well into their career, they have a different, different minimum survival budget, amount of time that they have, things, risks that they can take. And they kind of, they get out of the game a little bit, but they can play different roles in the game, which could be a, a coach, you know, the investors, the VC investors, best VCs are, they play this coach role very well. The best VCs are typically people that are operators that have built companies before and have gone through the process themselves and seen a lot of things all the way to, you know, coming in and a lot of, some people, they, they kind of do the startup thing for a while. It works or it doesn't work. It doesn't work in most cases, and yeah. but they have great experience and they, they really, you know, you have to be pretty good at a lot of different things. So they build up a really wide, very general skill set and a strong hustle. And they can take that to a large company and be successful or a medium company and play a very strong, important role. So for a lot of people, they can really accelerate their career through being involved in the startup. And for me, always, you know, I'll recommend for young starry-eyed, deer-eyed, you know, doe-eyed, whatever it's called, uh, yeah. entrepreneurs, would-be entrepreneurs, you know, I tell them that their, their first startup should not be their own. They need to go into a fast-growing company. And in a year, they're going to learn more than they would in 10 years trying to, you know, beat yeah. their head against the wall themselves. So once they have enough experience and they have an idea and they're the best at something, they're better than the average person at something, then they can try their, their turn at founding something. But the worst thing, you know, for them mostly is, you know, running around conferences with a CEO business card of talking about the same idea and not making any progress for years on end. They're just doing a disservice to themselves. Yeah. Great, 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 great feedback. And I, I wanted to ask that partly because I think for our listeners, it's so great to hear just how important it is to have a mentor, to have an advisor. You know, it, it's something in the Valley, there's just a plethora of, and there's the programs, you know, most of them started out of there. And for the listeners across the country, I always, I always promote to them, like, you know, go find someone who can give you advice, not an opinion, but advice, someone who's mm -hmm. been there, someone who has the experience who can help because as you're going down that road, they can always give you small outcomes, smart cuts to continue to move things along because they've been there. Whereas the person who hasn't, they sometimes just have an opinion about what you should do. And so, yeah, it's really good advice. Thank you for that. Yeah. I mean, one of the key things that I look for when I'm investing in companies myself is that is the team coachable. If, you know, if it's a young, very smart team, still, they need to surround themselves with people that are, you know, nobody knows everything. Like, you know, they need to surround themselves with, with experts and increasingly so as the company grows and they need to listen. They need to show that they're coachable and that they're, they're not arrogant, that they're self-aware and that they will, they will listen to people that can give them good advice. It, it, ultimately, it's, of course, onto them to make the right decision and kind of normalize all of that advice into one place. But but it's a big turnoff when you have somebody that's just this arrogant, you know, and you can tell that, yeah. you know, the, the less you know, the more you think you know. Right. Um, and they don't want to listen to anybody. They're, you know, 99 times out of 100, that leads to failure. 
Totally. Before we wrap up, I know your, your time is valuable and I thank you for coming on. I, I want to ask you a little bit about where you're at now. You're doing iBanking, investment banking. And uh, can you share with us a little about who you're with and what type of companies you guys work with and what you're looking for? Sure, sure. So our firm is called GS Capital. I'm the G. And my partner is the S. Uh, we have a small shop here. We, what we do is we do mergers and acquisitions and we do capital raising. It sounds, you know, for those that haven't been in the financial industry, that sounds complicated and, and impressive. But in reality, it, it's really about, you know, when, when companies are looking to, to raise a growth round, when it's no longer founder led, the founder is focused on the company overall. It may be led by the CFO at that point and the company is already operating. They usually get bankers involved to help them organize the process and, and do it in an orderly fashion. And then we do probably more than half of M&A, which is when a company is ready to find a buyer. You know, you read about it in TechCrunch, like, oh, this company got bought. And, you know, sometimes these things happen very quickly, but 99% of the time, it's a very long, very organized behind the scenes process of actually getting a company ready to be sold, bought, and then going through the process and finding the right partner, right strategic partner that could do it. We also work with a lot of European companies and some Asian companies that are coming to Silicon Valley and they need help kind of putting their footprint into into Silicon Valley. And it takes time for them to become really insiders before they're considered really a Silicon Valley company. So we, you know, with our experience, with our network, with us being here for many years, we can step in and help them to really get their feet on the ground here before they attempt to do a capital raise, before they do M&A, you know, they need to hire people, they need to, to really grow the footprint here. And on the other hand, we also work with public companies that are looking to sell a division of their you know, a division or a business that they have that might not make sense in their portfolio anymore, or they're looking to buy something because it's on strategy and they need help, or they're looking to set up corporate venture. So much like I did with HP, setting up a corporate venture, aligning it with strategy and, and helping them put their money in the right place and source great companies, uh, something we do as well. Awesome, awesome. So before we wrap up, I want to ask one last question. This is the Be Investable podcast. When you hear Be Investable, what does that mean to you? Find a place in the future. So focus on technology that, uh, like I said, it takes a while to, to build something. So that means that whatever you're working on now, you know, this company, if you're successful, will be public in eight to 10 years. We'll have its IPO. So that means like, where is that industry going to be then, right? Are you setting yourself, are you launching the rocket to intercept, intercept the moon at the right time or are you going to miss your mark? So timing is a huge thing in technology. And then the other thing, as I mentioned, is, uh, is being really, really smart about listening to other people in the industry and, and getting the right advice and being coachable. So be investable means be coachable and be timely with your technology, not too early, not too late, and do something really, really interesting and that, that can have a big impact. But Dad, I want to thank you so, so much for coming on the show and really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you so very much. Thanks, Michael. Appreciate it. Well, there you have it. The latest episode of the Be Investable podcast. Until next time, stay investable. In the meantime, check out our magazine by going to www.getinvestable.com forward slash magazine and subscribe for a free issue. Additionally, you can find more great content through our amazing media partners such as Cranes Business Detroit, Huffington Post, Michigan Business Network, Mishapreneur, Smart Hustle Magazine, and Startup Nation. Thanks again for tuning in, and we look forward to talking with you soon.